If you're mining for a good transfer pricing legal battle, then you've struck gold, or in this case, copper, today. On this episode of The Fiona Show Transfer Pricing, we're examining the landmark Glencore versus the Australian Taxation Office case, which just possibly hit the end of its rope. This May, the High Court of Australia denied the ATO's request to an appeal, but something tells us that the floodgates are just opening for the ATO and its challenging of multinationals. Joining us today is Cross-Border Solutions Director in Solutions Engineering, Doug Darling, and an individual who knows the ATO all too well, Jeff Morris. But first, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Oman is pumping the brakes on country-by-country reports. The tax authority revealed its plan to suspend requirements until further notice, an interesting choice considering the country just introduced them in September 2020. In the most recent published alert, the Oman Tax Authority irons out who falls into the exempt category. Interested? We thought you'd be. The suspension applies to multinational groups whose parent entity resides outside of Oman. While it's a nice reprieve for the applicable group, it's important to note that not all requirements have been taken off the table. The country-by-country notification requirement is still very much mandatory. You're welcome. They say those who forget history are condemned to repeat it, which is just what the IRS does not want you to do. The Internal Revenue Service published a legal advice memorandum on cost-sharing agreements with a reverse clawback provision inspired by its legal brawl with Altera. In case you need a refresher, the IRS and Altera went to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in 2019 over the inclusion of stock-based compensation in cost-sharing agreements. Altera opposed its inclusion and lost, and the Supreme Court refused to hear its appeal last June. Ouch. As for the recent memo, it looks at incidents where stock-based compensation is not included in cost-sharing agreements, but a reverse clawback provision is. A reverse clawback, which sounds more like a yoga move than a tax provision, is when a taxpayer must include stock-based compensation amounts that were previously omitted into their cost pools because of a triggering event like a court decision. The memo provides three conclusions regarding the taxable year of inclusion for any IRS adjustments, the impact of any IRS adjustment on any reserve clawback true-up obligation, and the IRS's authority to make other adjustments to ensure the arm's length principle is met. Our final tax news story takes us to the Great White North. Canada has released Circular 7117R6, Competent Authority Assistance under Canada's tax conventions to address administrative changes which apply to a multitude of topics including, drumroll please, transfer pricing. As per the circular, the CRA will accept a Canadian taxpayer's downward transfer pricing adjustment request if the following conditions are met. The request is completed within the treaty's specified time frame, the applicable tax authority has signed off on an upward adjustment, and the foreign competent authority has demonstrated efforts to resolve the case. The circular also says that MAP settlements should plan to be resolved within two years assuming that the required information has been obtained. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, 
Why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai slash rd. That's xbs.ai slash rd. Welcome back, everyone. We're here right now with Cross-Border Solutions Director in Solutions Engineering, Doug Darling, and an individual who knows the ATO all too well, Jeff Morris, to discuss its landmark Glencore case with the Australian Taxation Office. On that note, I'm actually going to hand things off to Doug to lead this conversation. Doug, you have the floor. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Matthew. So welcome, Jeff. Glad to have you. Appreciate you being able to talk about this kind of it's a very landmark case. Pleasure to be here. So let's back up a little bit. Last time you were on the show, it was about October 2020, right in the thick of the pandemic. And what is the status now maybe kind of in Australia as, as the U.S., you see us, I think we're doing well. We're coming out of the pandemic. And, and how did you adjust to it or how are you adjusting to it? As it, as it continues. Yeah, it's pretty interesting down here in Australia. I'm still working from home, still got Zoom and team friends, but at least we can go into the office and meet clients face-to-face. But in Melbourne here in Victoria, we're just coming out of our fourth lockdown. Wow. We'll have some easing of restrictions tomorrow. But other states, New South Wales in particular, is still in, a, in their, I think their second or third lockdown. They're battling the Delta variant right now. But the other thing that's causing everyone to pull the hair out is the slow pace of vaccination. We've still only got less less than 10% of our people with two COVID shots. So that's holding everything back. Other yeah, wow. Is, is wow. Up far, far ahead. So we're really battling that, getting access to the vaccines. Yeah, no, good luck with that. I mean, it seems like, I mean, here in the States, we've hit, kind of hit a plateau where there's, you know, the supply is outpacing the demand, if, if yeah. uh, nothing else. So... Uh, hopefully yeah. we can get, we'd love to get some over to you because, yeah. We'll that's, pay. Uh, we'll pay. We'll, <laughs> <laughs> we'll charge. We'll charge. Yeah. No, I'm sent price. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate you giving us that insight and, and hope that continues to go well for everybody. And, and we too, the, the thing is the Delta variant right now, right? So can certainly appreciate that. But yeah, kind of moving on to the, the, the subject at hand. So could you, a little bit about uh, your background, you've been in transfer pricing about 20 years or so, is that, is that right? Yeah, 20, 20 years in transfer pricing since the late 90s, or 22 years now, and I was a senior director in the ATO's Australian Taxation Office Field Economist Practice, so leading teams in Melbourne and Perth and sometimes in uh, Queensland other parts of the country trying to help work with the auditors to get, you know, the best transfer pricing position we can in risk reviews and audits and negotiations in maps and for APAs. So it's been every case, for, you know, for 20 years has been controversy. Every case has been a taxpayer disagreeing with everything that we've, <laughs> everything yeah, right. that we've done. So we, of we've course, kind of, that's our job. That's right. <laughs> We're pretty practised in thinking about transfer pricing. But one say with the last word though, I think it's probably ATO's got a bit of a reputation as being aggressive. I'm not sure I would say aggressive, maybe assertive might be a better way to put it. Yeah, I think that's a fair perception. I, I, I mean, and, and maybe you, you know, confirm that or not if you got your own feelings. But yeah, I think that's a fair perception. I, I think it is from our perspective. I know when our clients, we talk about the risk profile and their footprint, we definitely highlight Australia, Canada as well. So it's, it's kind of interesting, but, but yeah, I, I think that's a, a fair perception, whether perception is reality or not. So in your time then, in those 20, almost 22 years, is there anything, a regulation or a change, any kind of transfer pricing item that has been a shock to you? Any development? Uh, maybe not, but just I like to throw that out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe the first thing that comes to mind, and there's lots of niggling little things that you know appear and then they disappear and one recent one in australia has been around how royalty withholding tax has been applied and the implications for tp structures around the e-commerce and cloud computing and and so on and you know it's a kind of tangential kind of issue because how does royalty withholding tax you know affect tp but the big one to me is like the absence of 
you know, safe harbors mm-hmm. published by or developed by, you know, tax authorities that actually help, you know, especially smaller taxpayers get understand what their obligations are and, you know, what the pricing is. And, you know, in the US regulations, there's the applicable federal rate for interest rates, and yep. you know, which yep. is really good, you know, really so useful. And in Australia, we've published benchmark, you know, net margins for distributors. And New Zealand has done something similar for smaller taxpayers. Now that's helpful. Yeah. Whenever I talk to other people in other jurisdictions, they say, no, we don't have anything like that. <laughs> but why not? You know, because distributors, we all kind of know what the distributor margins are. Yeah, right, right. By large, and what expectations are. I mean, that would be a great help for taxpayers to understand especially smaller taxpayers. A lot of them don't have the resources, right, to to really do extensive studies. And, yeah, Yeah. you're right, a simple uh, safe harbor type. I agree with that. I agree with that. Make it simple as possible. I think that gives them some expectations, right, of what to meet. It's not such a guessing game. So I agree with that wholeheartedly. Well, exactly. And, like, if a fiscal comes up with different set of comparables, you know, they don't even have to publish the least one. I'll just publish some of the numbers. And, you know, and sure. the advisors can go yeah, away right, and right. try to back calculate and so on and see if they're kind of endorsed or not. But it should, this should all be very much more transparent than what it is. You know, it exactly. can't be that I, I, I agree. <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. It's too much of a guessing game and too much of a, you know, uh, moving the piece of the chess pieces. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it, it could be much simpler. So, okay. Just one last question, then we'll dive into the Glencore case, which is why we're here today. So is there anything from your time in the ATO that you apply to in your current role? Is it, you know, maybe understanding from the ATO side of things? Is it yeah, a lot simple, of, simple as that? Yeah, well, a lot of people ask me about how would the ATO see, you know, me and, and, and my risk profile? How, how do they go about understanding, filtering the kind of order risks that they have? And how do they select me as a, a risk review, for example? Sometimes it's, you know, like I had a, client the other day and made a point of saying, you know, well, they're an Australian headquartered company on your tax return. Don't put down a kind of a industry code that suggests you're a distributor because if you're receiving royalties or making losses, then, you know, you don't want to put paint yourself as a distributor and, and you know, someone question why those outcomes were reported on your, on your lodgements. So, you know, there's a little bit simple things like that, yeah. but, you know, even go kind of go a long way, get people some comfort. Yeah, and I think that even echoes the transparency yeah. you know, concept, right? Yeah, exactly. Transparency from both sides, yeah. I, I think, will go a long way. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Absolutely appreciate that insight, those personal items. So now let's dive into the technical part of, of actually why we're here. So Glencore versus the ATO been a big deal a lot of attention paid to it around the world can you give us a brief overview of the case what are the main areas of contention what's dispute kind of set the set the plate for us if yeah you will. yeah it's a, well, it's a it's a long-lived case and you know what you saw in the court you know is only a fraction of the time that you would see the parties spend together in an audit or risk review but it goes back to an agreement a company called cobar which is the name of the mine in australia made with their parent company, Glencore. And Cobar was a copper mine, so sold copper concentrate, which for those who don't know, is kind of ground up ore, you know, which has copper to the concentration of around 30% odd. So they usually sell this copper ore in huge bags, hundreds of kilos in these bags, and ship it then to the smelters around the world. So the audit covered the period from 2007 to 2009. So, you know, it's 2021 and we finally got a resolution on the case. So it's been mm-hmm. going quite a long time. So Cobar was selling this copper concentrate to Glencore, the Swiss trading company. So it's not exactly, you know, a, a kind of a situation where Glencore is a kind of distributor or a wholesaler of this stuff. They're a real trading entity and they trying to match producers with buyers and smelters and so on. So it's a really quite okay. involved part of the supply chain. And usually the agreements in this trading area they kind of have a couple of, a few, more than two legs. I was going to say a couple of legs, but there's more than, more than a couple of legs. One is there's a price benchmark, which is usually a London metal exchange grade pricing. 
which is usually for uh, solid copper, solid copper processed ore. So the parties then have to agree a treatment charge and a refining charge, which we call uh, TCRC, treatment charge, refining charge, which is usually a deduction from the benchmark price. But to arrive at the benchmark price, the parties can agree in a way, a averaging of a price, they can agree a price that's an average of the month, the prices in the month of the shipment, or they can agree a price that's based on the average of the month of arrival of the product at the destination port, or they can choose an option where the price is the average price of the month prior to shipment or average of the price month after arrival in the port. And there's other variations as well, but that gives you a, a sense of the complexity here. Because it sounds like we've got a commodity, right? That there's a market mm. for mm. that, you know, maybe a starting point and then you do some manipulations of that or some different things to kind of adjust that. Is that That's right, that's right. And we're not talking in the Cobart Lencore case, an arrangement that was so far fetched. What what I'm describing is, you know, pretty vanilla type mm-hmm. of arrangement in the trading of the commodity. Kind yeah, of it sounds like it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But you've got that starting point, right? That you know, you've got right. that ready-made benchmark, that that cup, if That's, you will. So yeah, yeah, yeah. There were a couple of features there that were kind of unusual. One was that in the agreement, there were so many options that allowed Glencore to choose the average of a monthly price that was often or, or sometimes known to them what the average price was. So the optionality, you know, allowed them to calculate quite closely exactly what the price outcome might be for them, what the buy price might be. And then the other part of the agreement, which was kind of somewhat unusual, was the use of a a price sharing formula, which was a TCRC based on percentage of the the price. In this case, it was 23%, which was quite a significant reduction in the price from the um, LME-based price. And then there was, the arrangement was fixed for three years, but it's kind of generally accepted in the industry that usually that there's annual negotiations of what the pricing arrangements might be or the TCRC charge might, might be. The other thing that was unusual was the shipping, which came up late in the appeal, first appeal. The price for the shipping was based on shipment of the product to India, which was the most expensive okay. destination to ship to. But the product was going all over Asia to China and Japan and Philippines and, and so on. So probably, you know, fair to say that ATO's contentions were, you know, that the, the optionality involved, the options, the kind of sequence mm-hmm. of options wasn't arm's length. The price sharing, the 23% TCRC charge was too high and standard TCRCs should have been applied instead and the arrangement should have been negotiated annually. And a bit of background too, you know, Cobar was not always a Glencore-related party. They'd been mining, I think, since at least since 1999. And then I think around 2005 at the latest, they were a Glencore-controlled entity. So there was actually agreements in place between Cobar and Glencore when they were third parties for the sale of copper concentrate. And the agreement when they were related parties was quite a bit different from the previous agreement that they had. So it sounds like they gave themselves several different ways of coming to that transfer price, right? Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of context we can get into about why that was the case. Part of it was the ATO's view as well. You know, we can look at the agreement as it was written, but, you know, the ATO's kind of broader position was that a third party would not have entered into that Mm -hmm. agreement. They should have entered into a different agreement, which is, Fewer options. Right. I was going to focus on that, that they wouldn't enter into a party, but they gave the other party so many options. That's right. That's right. That was part of the the issue. Yeah. I mean, I I can see some logic in that, right? I can. And when the ATO compared what the related parties had done to what the, you know, Cobar and Glencore had done as third parties, there were those obvious, obvious differences there that they were concerned about. But, you know, the taxpayer, you know, had an argument too, their argument was, well, there's no legal or kind of arm's length basis to assume a different agreement. So the test should only be about the 23% price sharing deduction against the kind of LME benchmark price. 
the optionality is normal, they contended. And they, and they said, well, even if the legal test was that a different agreement should have been struck, they were arguing that, well, an arms then the party would reasonably, well, I shouldn't say would, the court uses the words an arms then the party might reasonably have expected to enter the related party agreement, which had the optionality in the 23% and so on. It's quite a complicated case, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, no. Yeah. And just interrupting very briefly, just to clarify on a point there, given the Glencore case outcome, as transfer pricing advisors, and this goes for the both of you, if you're looking at a client and observing this, what's your reaction to the client? What are you observing? What advice are you giving to the client based on that? I've definitely been thinking about that. I see where the ATO is coming from. I can see why they might look at it and think you've given yourself too many options. You may end up at very vastly, maybe not, maybe not, different results. And so from a tax authority perspective, I I can see where they would have an issue with it. And I'm very much pro-taxpayer, but I think they may have given themselves too much carte blanche. So I would caution them maybe that they need to rethink about all the options and making it maybe a little more a little more definitive if they could because maybe some of these different ways fluctuations in the market etc cetera, etc cetera, are too but that's the first thought without knowing more that's my first take on that yeah i think your face value you know what Glenn called you looking at the agreement and comparing it to the old agreement the old length agreement you can see there's quite a bit of difference there and in the court expert opinion and the testimony that Cobar put forward, their broader argument was, well, you know, to understand the agreement that was struck, the related party agreement, you have to understand the commercial context of this mine and what they were trying to achieve in their risk tolerance and their cash flow position and their capital needs and all those things that are kind of day-to-day of concern, you know, to any company trying to operate a business. Mm-hmm. And in a way, you know, this the product that was going to Glencore was, I think you mentioned this before, but the product was 100% sold to Glencore, so it was only really one kind of outlet for their product. They weren't necessarily tied to that. They didn't have a life of mine agreement, but, you know, that's really not too hard to get out of, I would, I would expect. You know, but, but the options were if you didn't sell it to Glencore, you'd have to market the product yourself or you'd get another trader to do it for you. And so in terms of the kind of commercial context and the risk tolerance, you know, the company made, you know, Cobar and Glencore made a big kind of explanation and they were using company directors and their affidavits to explain this, that their position, the commercial position really almost required them to put this somewhat different arrangement in in place. And this, it kind of goes to, if you were thinking about this from the ATO's perspective or the fiscal tax authority's perspective, you know, those guys, you know, wouldn't necessarily know all about the context of the company. No, absolutely. Wouldn't wouldn't necessarily know all the context of the industry and how arrangements were struck either. And it points to if the company does want to go down kind of an arrangement that's not exactly vanilla in the industry, and there might be problems with that too, then the transfer price and documentation should be the kind of framework and which could be explained to a tax authority. And I think, you know, if you're looking at TP documentation, it's just about, I've got these comparables and therefore I've done this unusual thing, you know, that may not be on the face of it enough to get you out of a risk. A risk yeah. assessment, you know, with the clean right. <laughs> right, right. No, because you can't go into the detail and you might not want to. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, you might not want to go into the nuances. I mean, yeah. sometimes I'm a big proponent of uh, less is more. Yeah, saying what you need to say. Because if it's over-explained, not only are you kind of spending too many compliance dollars that could be spent elsewhere, but, you know, if you get a, a kind of a nuance or the explanation wrong, that the cynical tax officer might yeah. grab onto that as the issue. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So, yeah, I think we can agree on several of those items. Yeah. Okay. So to move on, so we kind of get a full breadth and coverage of the case. Bottom line, the ATO wanted to make a, an assessment. How significant was this assessment? 
I think it was in Australian dollars, two hundred and forty million is a number that comes to mind out of the out of the okay papers. Not, so, a, not a small amount. Not a small amount, and plus interest and penalties on top of that. You know, from in the years between two thousand and five and to seven and two thousand and twenty. That's 10 years worth of penalties and interest. That's probably as much as the original. As much as the original. Although, yeah. although you know, interest rates are far lower today, but quite substantial, yeah. But and not just the money issue either because, you know, Glencore operates in a lot of different countries around the world and in a lot of countries that are less developed than Australia. It's got a lot of, obviously, it's in commodity, you know, rich countries and, you know, it's corporate reputation. I mean, if you search Glencore in the, tabloid press, you'd find terrible stories every day, probably. Yeah. Their corporate reputation was still important to them. Yeah. So we're talking about, you know, not setting a precedent, when to avoid precedents. You know, even though, you know, another country, it's not binding, but clearly it's called a precedent. And there's that aspect of, of being a good corporate citizen, right? Mm-hmm. That, exactly. That, that is so, you know, I that's a whole concept I, I've got issues with. It's a corporation's job to make money, but they could be a good citizen as well. But you mm-hmm. you get into some you get into some fine lines there. Okay, so there's the assessment, and then what happened next? Glencore obviously pushed back. Yeah, they objected obviously, and there was a court case that went to came to a head in 2019, I think it was, and the ATO lost on every every argument completely, lost every argument. Whitewash. <laughs> okay, yeah. And so the ATO appealed, and in 2020, the, the decision got handed down on the appeal. ATO lost again, except, except it wasn't a whitewash. It was just a very minor victory they had on shipping. The court agreed that in the third year of the audit, which was 2007, I think it was, that the cost of shipping should not be based on India anymore. It should be based on the price the average price of shipping to China, even though the product was going, you know, other parts of the region as well. So, you know, the difference was, you know, $15 a ton or something. It's really quite a small, very small adjustment that the court allowed. And, you know, part of the big part of the arguments, both at the, you know, original case and the appeal was whether the ATO had the power or the evidence supported, you know, whether they could reconstruct an arrangement and swap out some terms for the preferred terms and so on and so on. And so that was a big part of big part of the argument there. And after the ATO lost the appeal, they recently sought special leave to appeal to the High Court, the Federal Court of Australia, the High Court. They had the case heard again because the ATO thought there was special issues of the application to the law that should be should be resolved. But the application for special aid to appeal was denied. The court said that all the issues that were raised were issues of fact, um, and they were covered off in the first case in the, in the appeal. And we all know that appeals courts or a form of appeal court don't relitigate the facts. That's right. Yeah. So that sounds consistent. So the ATO has got this ruling against them. There's essentially now, they've got a track record of, you know, me a cop, I was there at the ATO whilst this was going on. There was three decisions against the ATO. The one in favour was Chevron. Right, right, Chevron. Mm, which is an interest rate case. Yeah. But anyway, we'll get to, we can get to that. Yeah, definitely appreciate that background. So... What's the significance of this? What does the taxpayer this win mean for multinational entities, right? What what does it mean for the ATO kind of going forward or does it, right? Is it just, oh, we took a hit and we move on or was it impactful in any way? Well, it's a bit kind of early to tell for a couple of reasons. Generally speaking, the ATO will release a decision impact statement, you know, just on what they think the legal implications are of the loss that court might be. Regardless of whether they win or lose? Yeah. I like that idea. Yeah. And it's interesting because, and it's really useful because, you know, if the ATO lost the case, they'll generally say, oh, it was based on the particular facts and circumstances of the taxpayer and doesn't have broader application. You know, so sweep it under the carpet kind of thing. I don't think that should be the case this time. But the other thing that's kind of going on is there's another case 
between NATO and a very large multinational around a finance arrangement. This one is between Singtel Communications and ATO. Singtel is actually owns the second largest telephone company in Australia and they borrowed a lot of money from their parents to purchase the original assets. So it's a transfer pricing case. So, you know, why the Glencore decision and the commentary on, you know, whether the ATO can reconstruct or restructure an arrangement, you know, may have some bearing on that live case, which only, only the other day I saw knew more affidavits being handed to the court in preparation for, for that one being litigated. But the other thing, you know, that's really interesting about this case is just the comments from the court on so many things that are interesting. And, you know, one of the, and I'll read you some quotes here, I hope it's not going to be too boring. No, no, please. It gives us some insight into the court's thinking. Yeah, the court was very interested in the application of hindsight and they talked about the court's role and they said the court must take care not to make the task of compliance with Australia's transfer pricing laws an impossible burden when a revenue authority may, years after the controlled transaction was struck, find someone somewhere to disagree with the taxpayer's attempt to pay or receive arms and consideration. And that's really, that to me is really interesting because it raises questions about, you know, the ATO has got to almost rewind its audit back to years prior to the audit period to understand why the taxpayer did what they did and the comparables and the evidence at the time stand in the shoes of the taxpayer when the agreement was struck. And really, you know, calls out to me question whether any anything like a TMM based argument could could get up in court, which obviously has implications for the tax authorities, but also for taxpayers who are trying to comply. You know, if they try to rely only on a TMM without of that comparables, how does that what does that mean for their transfer pricing? So that's a very interesting comment, a very kind of not clear to me exactly how that will you know, kind of play through. The other kind of insight here is just the, kind of the nature of the evidence that was tendered. You know, both sides had industry experts, but Glencore had one of their directors from Cobar, the company, actually put an affidavit down that explained all of their risk and commercial considerations and explained what drove them, you know, to adopt what might be otherwise an unusual arrangement. And his analysis and his opinion was tested in court and the court essentially fell in love with it. You know, they just said this guy was, you know, there at the time and his, you know, rationale was on the face of it against all kind of arguments was sufficient. So it explains what the taxpayer did. There's no reason to replace what they've done. Let's look at the comparables, whether the 23% was right, and that, and that's, that's as far as the argument should go. Yeah, I find that interesting. So was this testimony, for, for lack of a better word, after the fact? Or I think it would be most powerful and persuasive if, if it's contemporaneous along with when you're setting those transfer prices, right? Um, yeah. That was your mental thought at the time. That's right. Yeah, his testimony was after the fact. That's right. Still helpful, obviously, right? But Absolutely. And we all know the aspect of contemporaneous, but it's such a, you know, to take the time to do documenting. Here's why we're maybe, and I'm not saying Glencore did, but maybe why we're straying from the norm or maybe why we're not, you know, going with the standard vanilla approach. It really goes back to, documenting your position at that time. That's right. Yeah, that's that's right because, you know, you at least need to have the architecture of your argument set down, even if you don't have it all fully fleshed out. If you explain your risk profile and your, you know, your considerations and your, you know, capital needs and so on, the drive, the pricing arrangement and so on. And we're not talking about a side deal here between the Cobar and Glencore. We're talking about 100% of output, so it's quite a, that bears on people's thinking, obviously. So all of that kind of has to be at least sketched out at the documentation time. Sure, at least fleshed out. Yeah, right. Have your framework. Yeah. You know, that it's yeah. not going to be the final final work product. That's right. And you're trying to manage compliance costs, and you know, saying less is better. And I agree. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> less, yeah, I'm sitting here saying less, less is more. Yeah, I'm saying yeah. less is more, but at the same time, yeah. I'm suggesting you, you know. Yeah. But I think it's a matter of picking the right, picking your spots. 
That's right. You want to have, you know, the architecture of your argument kind of laid out there so you could add more work around it if, if need be. But there was a couple of other things, you know, that were really kind of interesting as well. And the court spent a lot of time talking about what the burden of proof was in a, you know, an Australian TP case. And a lot of people say, you know, ask the question, well, what would an arms length party have done? What would an arms length party accept? What would an arms length price be? And the court took the exception to the phrase would, what would an arms length party do or agree? And they said, the court said, well, that's not the test. The test is what's most likely that a third party would agree. And is that likelihood based backed up by evidence? And is that more likely than the next best option? It would almost, what would an arms length party do? What sounds like has to be a degree of certainty about it. But the court in this case said, no, it's not, that's not the case. It's what's most likely, what's most reasonable. It doesn't have to be the definitive would. It doesn't have to be an 80% kind of perfect. Just even a 40% likelihood might be reasonable if the other options are less, less likely than that. That was really interesting and that kind of plays through, you know, into, if you're a litigator of transfer pricing, that, you know, you might want to think about how that might help you structure your case, for instance. Most definitely. Most definitely. Mm. There were two other things, one of which was I'm an economist, so, you know, I start from the point of view that a company, as you were saying, you know, companies there to make money, right, maximise profits. But the court said, hold on. That's their fiduciary duty to the shareholders. Yeah. I, I, I go back to what's going on today, you know, relate this to, you know, the woke culture, right? What's going on today in corporations, you know, siding yeah. with social issues. I mean, I, I think it's a good way for the board directors and the C-suite to get themselves in trouble. <laughs> Maybe the court agrees with you because they, and, you know, Glencore had published in their annual reports and their policies and so on that the group objective was maximising profits from the group assets, so Glencore. But you know what the Australian court said? They said that, policy was a so-called policy, was a mere commercial platitude, that there was no obligation to maximise profitability at the expense of other things, and it was not relevant to the court about what an arm's length consideration might be. So, like, opens up a massive can of worms. Like, sure. <laughs> right, right. You know, what is the company meant? Well, look, if we start from a profit maximising objective, what is it that the company is meant to be doing if it's not to maximize profits and it doesn't mean they're not being a, a good corporate citizen as well i think you know both yeah. can be achieved but i definitely think that aspect of it is, is certainly under the spotlight now yeah globally more than it ever has so do you think this case will does it do anything to deter maybe that's a strong word cool the ato's aggressive approach to transfer pricing and challenging or is it just business as usual Status quo. Yeah. If I know the ATO, I think the answer would be heck no. You know, <laughs> and that's, that's the answer I expected. Yeah, yeah. And there's a kind of a couple of reasons for that is, you know, the law that was applied is old law in a sense. It's law that's been made redundant by other changes since 2007. So it's old law, you know, the strict black little law reading of it. It doesn't mean anything for the new law, you know. So everyone, BAU, let's wait until we see yeah. what the next case tells us about the law. But, I mean, I think that's that's missing an opportunity in a way, you know, because the court, I mean, we're a, Australia is a common law country, and so we rely on a mixture of the legislation as well as court decisions to tell us, sure. you know, what the law is. And if the courts are saying, you know, the absent principle is what's reasonably likely, that a third party would, would do and they're, you know, sceptical of any fiscal coming many years after the fact, you know, with a, somewhere, someone, you know, critiquing what a taxpayer has done. Either the law has to change or, you know, the fiscal has to adapt to the reality of what the court standard, the courts are applying, which means that in a case like Blencore, you can't just look at comparables in isolation from the risk-bearing attitudes of the taxpayer or the commercial context of need to manage a mine that has, you know, pretty strict capital requirements and has the operating costs and so on of the Cobar mine, for example. So the transfer pricing can't just be about, well, I've done this, you know, formulary functional analysis and I've done this kind of pretty simple benchmarking and 
hey, presto, I've seen some differences, so here's a broader adjustment. That, you know, if that's as simple as the fiscal's approach is, you know, then they're probably missing missing the true meaning of what arms and principle is all about. And that's a hard task, right? That's a hard job for a fiscal to, to kind of do because it means that they've got a, the cost of an audit gets blown out. They've got, you know, four or five people in a team looking at this company for years, have to manage the, any negotiations to resolve the order. That can't happen. So they go to litigation, got to find experts and so on and so on. But if everyone knew the standard that the court was applying right up front, both the fiscal and the taxpayer, you know, then would mean shorter, more focused audits, surely, and a better day for everyone. Yeah, yeah. So once again, it comes back to, you know, practical consideration. Yeah. Yeah, the cost of an audit, the cost of resources, and eventually Mm. that often ends up controlling or at least driving what happens. No two multinational companies everywhere. If you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp so you mentioned some earlier not to miss this point you mentioned chevron case right the chevron mm. decision mm. and so how do you think the glencore case echoes or doesn't echo the 2017 chevron decision like mm. specifically around these hypothetical agreements right because mm-hmm. we go back to that hypothetical you're, you're making stuff up right you may base it on something some reality but it's still a, a massive what if analysis how does this land in that context yeah and that's you know the what if analysis is a kind of a common by taxpayers. I use it every day. Somehow I got to yeah. fit it in every day. <laughs> Cost benefit and what if. I haven't used those talking in my professional that day. I've, I've, I've had a bad day. If you haven't critiqued the position based on the what if argument, then you're not going to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think, you know, to move it from what if to reasonably likely, you've got to have evidence. You've got to have evidence of what third parties do and you've almost you've got to stand in the shoes of the taxpayer and kind of consider all the angles, which means, you know, almost going beyond the comparables, you've kind of got to get in under the hood of the comparables almost to understand, you know, how an agreement was reached, for instance. And I think this kind of points to the difference between the Chevron and the Glencore case. Let me start with Glencore, talking about that. In Glencore, the ATO's argument, well, you know, the terms A, B and C over here shouldn't have been in the agreement, the terms X, Y, Z that we've described for you over here should have been in, in the agreement. So, you know, the court has a kind of a weighing up of the options and the evidence goes either way. Obviously, they found in favour of the taxpayer of the company. But in Chevron, you know, the ATO's argument was, well, you've lent this, this money to your Australian subsidiary, but you didn't ask for any security or covenants or guarantees or, you know, seniority or anything. You just adopted a almost a subordinated vanilla low credit rating, an arrangement that would give you a low credit rating. So it was the absence of doing something which the court was concerned about and all the experts lined up from the ATO side were the view that, well, both the group and the entity doing the borrowing would be interested in having security and having seniority and having all those other features 
to do with the loan because that meant that it was far easier to be certain that the loan would be repaid, which is much more critical than just the interest rate by itself. So in that sense, the absence of something in the Chevron case was critical and it kind of almost allowed ATO to say, aha, you know, the standard industry practice or industry practice in this particular circumstance would have required, you know, there's a good argument to offer security or seniority and those other features and get the interest rate down because it made the loan more bankable, if you like. The deal more more likely to be made. So it was a Kind of an interesting economy between those two. Yeah, so it sounds like, you know, just a basic difference is the, the persuasiveness of the evidence or of the argument. I mean, that's good old-fashioned lawyering, right, or what you may want to see out of a court, right, as, as opposed to, you know, courts being proactive or judicially mm. away or a, a side or another. It's the persuasiveness of the evidence. Yeah, yeah. Right. And your point being, for Chevron, it was a lack thereof. Yeah, yeah. That kind of doomed them. Okay. Okay. No, that's interesting. Does this say anything specifically, do you think, or illuminating about the importance of identifying comparable transactions or agreements with respect to the ATO? Does it heighten it? Is there any impact on, what does that say about their thoughts on the importance of identifying accurate, truly comparable transactions agreements yeah well there's a kind of a couple of angles to this isn't there just if we took the court agreed with the company's argument that no 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 there's no need to restructure the arrangement let's just look at the, whether the 23 percent was right and you know you look at the comparables around that 23 percent and the number was in the range was in the arms and throat was in the range of what was in the agreements in these third-party bona fide agreements so you know, obviously nothing more to do, you know, it's in a sense job done. Yep. You know, the harder argument was on the ATO side where, they, where they're saying, well, no, you know, we can't look at those agreements that endorse the 23% because they're not relevant agreements for what an arms and party was likely, most reasonably likely to have done. You have to look at these other agreements and other industry behaviour to understand what should replace that 23%. It should be a fixed dollar amount and, you know, with some up or down clauses and so on. And so, in a way, both the 23% test had a pool of comparables, you know, around it, the universe of comparables, and the ATO's argument around we should have had a different agreement and here the comparables that support the nature of that different agreement had its own universe of comparables around it as well. But they also, ATO also needed to have a comparable that showed, well, I was offered a deal that was what the... Glencore and Cobar had done, but I didn't want to go down that road. I actually went down the road of doing an agreement that the ATO was now presenting as the likely, reasonably likely structure that the company would have adopted. So you really need to get on, you know, again, it's about trying to get under the hood of an agreement because even if it wasn't 23%, maybe it should have been 21 or 22 or 25 or 27, you know, what drives that number? Maybe some of those numbers would have been the circumstances outside the Umsons range. What would be the case there? Why is an interquartile range, for example, so important? Would it have relevance in trying to test cup agreements, for example? So it's kind of hard to be definitive and make generalised statements other than to say, you know, either way you go, you should have comparables. And, and the more you understand of the kind of commercial context of those comparables, the better. Yeah, no, I, I, I've always looked at benchmarking as a more of a holistic approach. I, I mean, mm. I, there are so many variances and nuances that should be taken into consideration. But again, then you go back to limits on resources or time. Then, you know, just get my comparables. I got a range I like. And I think that's kind of just the default for those other reasons, right? Just kind of lack thereof. And I think, you know, a comparable benchmark is an art form. But it's something that it's difficult to put the time or money or effort into it. You just get your benchmarks and call it a day. Yeah. And you really have to, you know, pick your battles in a way. If you're working with a distributor and you kind of know the kind of numbers because you've been engaging with the industry and with the, with the regulator, you know, for so long, you get a pretty strong sense of what's acceptable, where things are at. And there might be, that might be a problem of falling into, into a bad habit, but, you know, you kind of may not want to put so much emphasis on that, but 
if you had a kind of a deal arrangement that was like Glencore's, was 100% of your revenue came from a certain structure and you knew the structure was a bit unusual and it was significantly dollars involved, then you might want to put some more time into it. But, you know, there are limits on how much you can even know about comparables because once you look, read the annual report or the disclosures around an agreement, you know, to get more, you have to almost talk to the people involved. Right. What isn't being said, right? A lot yeah. of times, as much as is being said is not being said mm-hmm. for different reasons. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I get you. I agree. It's not just some cut and dry exercise that it more often than not tends to be for lack of resources and time and money and all those good reasons. But it's it's certainly what supports your transfer pricing. That and the functional analysis, of course. But Yeah, a company's you know, resources might be constrained. Like they've got the inside knowledge of what the company is doing, but the fiscals sometimes have their own information sources too. And what I used to do, you know, with the ATO was if we had a kind of a tricky kind of uh, pricing problem, you know, something we hadn't seen before, something like e-commerce and ad servers and, you know, how ads were sold, you know, on a web page and so on, we'd actually go and talk to people who are kind of operating in that, in that business. Mm. Yeah, just to have a chat with them, not even as an affidavit for a case, but just have a chat about what the nature of the agreements were, what some of the push and pull factors were around you know, the agreements and the rates that were struck. And sometimes we even do that with distributors. If there was a unique distributor in Australia that was third party, just go and have a chat with them about how they strike their distribution arrangement. Right, right. In, you know, in your particular case, just good industry knowledge. I mean, and you use it as a way to help the junior economists, you know, to understand, you know, the pricing isn't just around comparables, it's around understanding the commercial context of the Sure. The test of sure. Yeah, the, yeah. The commercial aspects of it, the, the practical, yeah. the real, the real yeah. aspects of it. I consider myself or anybody at transfer pricing as much uh, an information junkie. I mm. can't, I can't absorb enough information when it comes to, you know, benchmarking or the functional narrative, you know, saying exactly. this is a full-fledged manufacturer, this is a low-risk distributor, limited risk. As we use those terms, you know, we throw around low-risk distributor so easy. And, and information is power and knowledge mm-hmm. is power. So mm-hmm. I think to be a good transfer pricing professional, you have to be naturally inquisitive. Exactly. And, and not everybody is. And, and I get that. <laughs> but, yeah. But I consider myself an information junkie, almost to the point of information overload uh, at times. So got to look beyond the labels. The labels are you know, really keywords that you put into databases, they're not. Yeah. They'll be all end all of what a company is and does, yeah. Yeah. No, I I consider myself very cynical, so I take very little at face value. I've got to know what's going on behind the scenes. Um, there's <laughs> what's the real motivation here? This, you make a good auditor. I yeah, I could, I could, I I, <laughs> I I I I do you know a little bit of auditing in a way of you know documentation, a little TP forensics as I call it. So we've covered a lot here, and this is great stuff, especially you know the Australia and, and the ATO and and the perception of that from outside you know Australia, and this is all helpful. So bottom line. What's the takeaways? What can, you know, multinationals do to protect themselves, right, as modeled by by Glencore in that case? And I, I think we've touched on a few of them, right? But I, it'd be nice to maybe we, we kind of summarize them in a nice tight little package. Yeah, well, you, I think, you know, obviously you've got to have good TP documentation and have that kind of architecture of, you know, the, what's really going on in the business, you know, around which you can flesh out the commercial context and the risk bearing and, kind of explain why the pricing makes sense to you. And especially as contemporaneous as possible, right? Uh-huh. And, and, uh-huh. And, and as less after the fact as possible. So yep. definitely. And, you know, the, the, the fiscal can go after emails and board minutes and, and invoices and, you know, oh, yes. uh, adjustments up and down and go after all kinds of information throughout your business. You Having in your mind that kind of focus on, you know, why is, why is this pricing make sense to us? And having a documentation line up behind it, like a commercial consideration. And even briefing, you know, if you need to have your directors see and understand the pricing and kind of understand, you know, what they may need to be called on if there's any court case around it, like in, <laughs> like in Glencore, at least they're not coming at it, you know, with no knowledge, at least they're coming at it from some insight into why what was done, why it was done. But also, you know, so commerciality is super important. But if you're going to go to court, obviously you need experts 
industry experts in Australia, TP experts, you know, looking at what the court said around the the role of TP experts, you know, they're just not going to they're just not going to fly. You need really people who have insights into how prices are set in the marketplace, like in, in commodity prices. That's a kind of a there's many people around the world who have that job, so there shouldn't be any any shortage of experts. Right. It's not yeah. the uniqueness of it goes away, right? A little yeah, bit. It starts it starts to be diluted. That's right. But there's also, you know, obviously this case was all about what was most reasonably likely a third party would have done. You know, it's not about TNMM analysis, it's much more about cups, which means that the kind of attitude of the courts and their view of hindsight might mean that if someone's coming at a dispute just with TNMM, they're probably in not a very strong position or the, or the court might go either way. Yeah, that's that's interesting, you know. Yeah. When, when you talk about looking at a transaction like loans or royalties, right? You're you're looking at agreements mm. much more than comparable companies. I mean, I think that lends itself more to that second guessing of hypotheticals. What were the parties doing when they ended this agreement? What were they thinking? Whereas, you know, you're looking at your, you know, for services and tangible goods, you know, your benchmarking companies, you're looking at the financial numbers, right? It's, That's right. Yeah. You yeah. do need to understand yeah. the, the, they're comparable in their functions, assets and risks, right? But you're still looking at numbers and it's much more quantifiable, maybe much more, it doesn't lend itself to that what ifing. That's um, right. Yeah. Yeah. And the way an audit might play out is, you know, you might, at the end of an audit, you might be thinking, oh, I've got this big bill and I've got penalties and interest here. Should I go to court or should I go to a map route or should I, could I even try to get an APA, which, you know, cleans up the past and might provide some certainty mm. for, the, for the future. If you're looking at a TNMM kind of, I wouldn't, you know, without knowing more, you would be kind of skeptical about being successful in court. It'd be much better to stream your case towards a map resolution because, say, if you're dealing with Australia and the US or Australia and the UK or, you know, any one of those jurisdictions that kind of lives and breathes the OECD kind of guidelines or their or their equivalents, then you're more likely to have an argument between two fiscals that is based on which comparables are better and how can they resolve the case to the mutual satisfaction. <laughs> Or at least a mutual agreement, if, right, if it's right. not very satisfying for both parties. You know, but if you've got a cup, you know, if you've got a price, commodity price or interest rate price that you, you know, think you've done the work on, then you might think you're going to be more successful as a court and it might cost a bit more than a map case, but you might uh, win everything rather than get a negotiated outcome which could be important. And so maybe the, of course, the last time is the moral implication of this is maybe very simple as you know, even if it looks like a David and Goliath, right? You know, kind of situation. You got to be willing to stand up and fight when it's right to do so. I mean, it's a daunting task, I think, you know, the, to, an expensive task. Yeah. But you, you have to look at those kinds of implications as well. And that's, that's very fluff, I know, but I think there is an element of that too. That's, that's the moral aspect. Yeah, and sometimes, I'm not talking out of school here, but sometimes if you've got a settled, you know, if you're a company that's got a settled TP advisor, you've been with them a long time and they, you know, kind of been working a particular way, then you end up in a dispute with the tax authority. You could always get, you know, some independent or kind of fresh yeah. fresh eyes. Fresh set of eyes. Yeah, advice. I, yeah, exactly. I think that's not a... That's not a bad idea to think about occasionally anyways, to kind of a level set to make sure your thinking is still in line. That's right. That's right. And they might have, you know, if you're someone like me, you know, has got a bit of expertise or experience with a, with actual dealing with the fiscal or map situations or APAs. And there's lots of other people around, you know, who are ex-fiscal too, so it's on ad for myself. But, you know, you can get different perceptions and different perspectives and, you know, you, you might have been dug yourself into a trench and being engaged in trench warfare, we might <laughs> feel like, and you, but you want a way out. How do you get, how do you get out with, with, a, right. with a decent set of teeth, you know? <laughs> 
Yeah, sure, absolutely. You know, you, you might you know want to get a different set of eyes or a fresh set of eyes. To I think that's always a, a, a wise thought, at least, of mm. whether you execute it or, or not. I think that's a best practice, really, to keep everybody level set. Occasionally, you get too comfortable. That's right, yeah. That's very harmful in life in a lot of different ways, I, <laughs> yeah. I think. So. Yeah. You know, one of the other interesting things that the Glencore case was what the court thought about the OECD guidelines. They critiqued it pretty heavily. The guidelines being has been very highly generalised, frustratingly opaque, that they are just a guide and how an OECD country might translate the arms and principle in, into law. And the court noted that while I was obliged to work with the guidelines because the law in Australia tells them to, it only need to do so only to the extent that they are relevant. And as the principles in the guidelines are expressed in such nebulous terms, they may not be much help in applying the law. That's pretty blunt assessment. I mean, that's a pretty, he's not, <laughs> right? He's like, yeah, these are helpful. That's right. I think they've just said, well. They're nice in theory. Yeah. yeah it goes to my point around, you know, if someone says I've applied the guidelines, um, I'm okay, the court might take a different view. And, the, you know, the ATO might take a different view as well. They're not very impressed by the guidelines. I mean, when you read them, it says may or may not and, uses such fluffy language. Should, should not, right. Yes. And, you know, to a lawyer and you were to litigate it, you know, the terms that are used kind of just vague. They're kind of all it's it's all at sea. It's not grounded in the context of the case. So there's a real job in trying to apply the guidelines to to an actual court case. It was like a big, big takeaway for me. No, no, I absolutely kind of gave them, I mean, you know, they're not, they're not demeaning the OECD guidelines by any means, but they're putting some reality around it. That, yeah, we can look at these, but these aren't gospel. They're still guides and, and you still have to do your homework. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I've enjoyed this discussion. Uh, I really have. I mean, I'm one of those odd people, Jeff, that I, I like talking about transfer pricing. I, <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I find it fascinating. Uh, it's so yeah, many, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it is so many disciplines that you yeah. you can't get bored with it. It's economics, it's tax, it's legal, it's understanding business operations. And so I actually enjoy talking about it and, and teaching and learning about it. So I, uh, this has been a great discussion for me. It really has. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Welcome back, everyone. Now comes for my favorite part of the show, our rapid-fire round of more personal questions. We call this round What We Want to Know. We ask our guest in the hot seat some more personal questions. Sometimes transfer pricing comes into it, but it's really more about getting to know our guest. And, of course, our guest today is former ATO official Jeff Morris. Thank you so much for being with us, Jeff. Always question one, are you ready? I'm ready. Excellent. What does your ideal weekend look like? Well, I love a weekend outdoors in the great Aussie bush, and especially if it involves uh, beef, steak, and beer. What has been the most important career lesson you've learned, and how did you learn it? Well, the most, from a transfer pricing perspective, the most important lesson is to put your case as well as you can and be prepared as well as you can, because you know that everyone's going to disagree with you. So you got to be backed up by evidence. Amen. What's a fashion trend you just don't get? What do you wish would come back into style? The Zoom wear comes to the office. Let's <laughs> please let's please let's not please let's not bring that to the office. <laughs> Anything you'd wish would would come back? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> There's too much nostalgia I think, right yeah, now. I think any changes and improvements. So let's keep keep changing. Yeah. 
I feel like we've done like five eighties revivals. Like <laughs> let's like we we had maybe one sixties revival and five eighties revivals. I feel oh. like we need to turn the page on. <laughs> I was I was born in 87. Maybe I'm a little biased. Anyway, how have you seen transfer pricing evolve over your time in this career? Yeah, I mean, probably an easy question to answer. The biggest change is the whole purpose agenda. You know, yeah. and we've talked about this in the round the Glencore case and trying to ensure that the underlying transaction is an arm's length one. Is it, you know, the structure is arm's length. And those changes that came through in the 2017, you know, guidelines and in the OECD's new finance chapter, because if you don't have an arms length agreement, how can you have an arms length price? That would be right. pretty important. But it's amazing to see, you know, Pillar 2 get up so quickly after the new president gets sworn in. Hardly unexpected if the G7 countries are going to be benefited most, but perhaps uh, the quid pro quo will be Pillar 1 and the G20 will move ahead on that, which, you know, may benefit less developed countries, but very populous countries like Indonesia or Nigeria. But on the other hand, it might simply be forgotten about as, you know, too hard and Pillar 2 was the main game anyway. So very interesting to see that that progress. Very interesting times we live in, and I didn't think they could get any more interesting than last year, but 2021 does appear to surprise us. Thank you so much, Jeff, for being on the program. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. We want to thank Jeff Morris and Doug for joining us on today's show. If you liked this podcast, you're going to love the other shows in the Cross-Border Solutions Tax Podcast Suite. That's the Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit and the Fiona Show Tax Provision. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing. And we'll keep you up to date on the latest in transfer pricing. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. Andrew O'Donnell is our audio producer. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchumstrom is our executive producer. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll catch you next week.